0: Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Well, let's get into it. Uh, Sam did a great job wrapping up John. Chapter three last week. So we are starting John chapter four, and we're going to be in verses uh, one through 26. We're going to break this up into a few different sections. So let's read verses one through nine to start out. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar in the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, uh, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me? For a drink, so we're here. We've got the conversation with the woman at the well. We've heard sermons on it. We've heard illustrations that point to it. Uh, There's a lot going on in this interaction, so we're going to try to unpack as much of this as we can this evening. Last week, Sam mentioned the the conflict that was arising between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus's disciples, and this back and forth. And John said, "Hey, he must increase, and I must decrease." And so, so John chapter four starts with. Uh, With letting us know that Jesus is aware that he is now on the Pharisees' radar, that he is getting more disciples, that more people are being baptized by him. Uh, His message and John the Baptist's message was a little bit different. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Uh, And so so Jesus, for maybe a couple of different reasons, maybe one to avoid conflict with John the Baptist's disciples, uh, decided to go north to Galilee. Maybe. Uh, and this would probably be the way that I lean, is because his hour had not yet come. And so he said, hey, I'm gonna leave this religious hub of Jerusalem. It'd be like if you were a politician and you're going to Washington, D.C., where all the other politicians are, and you're like, hey, I wanna remove myself from kind of this, this bubble. I'm gonna go back to, uh, to the different area. And so Jesus is saying, hey, we're gonna leave Judea. We're gonna travel north. And it's really interesting um, because it says something. So we've got, uh, we've got a map, and, a, and I think Sam put up uh, some maps um, last week. But you've got Judea in the south, you've got Samaria right in the middle, and you've got uh, Galilee in the north. Now, how many of you guys have heard that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along? Yeah, we're pretty familiar with that. So we're going to do just a little bit of a brief history of kind of why they didn't get along. I've never really thought much about it, just kind of take it at face value. Oh, they don't get along. Cool. Um, if you read it in, in, in 1 Kings 11, you see a prophecy that's, uh, uh, where's it? Ahijah had had a gift to Jeroboam. And it said this in First in, uh, Kings, uh, we'll read verse 30 uh, through 33. It said, Ahijah took a hold of his new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these pieces, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give 10 of the tribes to you, but I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. For Solomon has abandoned me and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the the Sidonians, uh, Chamash, the uh, the god of Moab, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites. He has not followed my ways and done what is pleasing my sight. He has, dis, he has not obeyed my decrees and the regulations as David, his father, did. So you've got Solomon. You've got one king removed from David who is like the hero of, of Israel, right? Who, who is, who is uh, like on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. You've got his son, started out great. His son built a temple, but he had this downward cycle where he was influenced by, by different women, 700 wives, you know, he's being pulled in, in a lot of different directions. And it's interesting to note that if you read through the Old Testament, you see that the greatest threat to the nation of Israel never came from the outside invaders. Um, you may be like, whoa, 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 whoa. These, these outside countries invaded and exiled and captured them. You're absolutely right. But it was in response to what happened inside the country. The greatest threat to the Israelites was the compromise that happened on the inside. That was the cause for the judgment that God allowed to happen to the nation. So you've got Solomon starting out, and God's, God's like, hey, you know what? We're gonna split this kingdom up. It's not gonna happen. And then you've got the, the northern kingdom um, after, and, and the southern kingdom as well, but you've got these kingdoms. Um, you've got this kind of downward cycle happening where these kings did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And the prophets would be like, get it together, turn it around, and they wouldn't listen. And occasionally you get a bright spot where it's like, this king did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, and they would prosper during that time. But then after that, they would continue down this downward cycle. And it was always from the inside that was the greatest threat to the nation of Israel, which if you parallel it to today, we talk about this culture war that's happening against the Christians and the church. Can I tell you the greatest threat to the church is never the persecution from the outside, it's never the government. It's never the culture. That's not The greatest threat, you read through the New Testament, time and time and time again, they warn about the false teachers. If you read Galatians, where Paul is like, how quickly you've turned away from the gospel that I first gave to you. And, and the greatest threat to the church is similar to the greatest threat that was happening in the time of Israel is from the inside. The compromise that happens, the watering down of the gospel, right? This, this false gospel that's no gospel at all, Um, You you read where people are going to be teaching what people want to hear instead of what the Word of God says. And and it's very similar, the parallels between what's the greatest threat in the Old Testament compared to what's the the greatest threat um, for the church today, which is what's happening on the inside. Um, And so you see this playing out in the nation of Israel, where Solomon's compromise was the undoing of this united kingdom, and then the compromise of the kings after him was the inevitable downfall of the nation. And so you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom established, uh, was established their capital in Samaria. You read 1 Kings 16, uh, 23 and 24. Omni, or Omri began to rule over Israel in the 31st year of King Asa's rule in Judah. He reigned 12 years in all, six of them in uh, Tirzah. Then Omri bought, bought the hill known as Samaria, from its owner, Shemer, uh, for 150 pounds of silver. He built a city on it and called the city Samaria in honor of Shemer. So you've got this, the northern kingdom with their capital of Samaria. You've got the southern kingdom with their capital of Jerusalem. For the longest time, I thought the Samaritans were like this foreign, this weird people, but they were, they were brothers, they were family. Um, they, they, they were united and then they weren't. It's like, what happened? Very similar beliefs. What happened was when the Assyrians came and invaded and they exiled a little over 27,000 of the Israelites, and when they exiled the Israelites to like modern-day northern Iraq, they imported people from from all different areas that had different gods, different cultures, um, different customs, and these people they imported um, began to intermarry. They began to uh, blend uh, the Samaritans' culture with their culture you read in the Bible where God gets kind of ticked off and he sends lions to like kill these people as a sign. Um, and then they still continue to intermarry and, and muddle uh, God's word and his decrees. And so the Samaritans, um, they had a similar foundation. They viewed the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, they, they viewed that as authoritative. Um, but Psalms, prophets, no, they didn't listen to any of that. And so there was like, it would be like this extreme sect of Christianity that we would we would say, well, they're not really Christians, right? That's a crazy. But they would be like, no, we're Christians. Like the Samaritans thought they were God's chosen people. Like they they were like, no, like you Israelites are wrong. Like we're, we're God's chosen people. Um, they actually built their, their, um, their capital on a, a very uh, historical site. They built it on um, Mount Gerizim, which overlooks Shechem, which is where in Genesis 12, Abraham built the first... Uh, alter to God. And so they're like, we have claimed that we're just as much God's chosen people, if not more so than you. And, and so there's this, there are like 800 years of animosity between them. Like, I just thought, oh man, they're just a weird country, right? It'd be like, you know, we just don't like these people that live, you know, next, it'd be like us not liking Canadians. I don't know, right? Whatever your feelings towards them. But um, like, <laughs> I hope none of you are from Canada. But I thought there were. I thought there was. I, I didn't know what it was rooted in. And then I began to study, and I was like, "Oh, that's what happened." In 128 BC, you have this Jewish attack on the Samaritan temple. They actually destroy their temple. Um, in about six or seven AD, you have a, you have the Samaritans come as the the uh, um, the Jewish people are are doing an expansion project to the temple, and they desecrate the temple. They throw like a corpse into the temple area. And so construction has to stop for like a week so they can purify the area. And so there's this animosity that's going on between them. And so as we read about the Samaritans in the New Testament, you read about the good Samaritan. As Jesus is talking about the good Samaritan, the people, the Pharisees and the people are just like, their jaws are hitting the floor. There's like, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. Those people group just by themselves were considered unclean, defiled. And so you read that Jesus had to go through Samaria, that he was compelled to go through Samaria. if you'll put that map up um, there's actually a few different ways around it. You can go um, to the east up the Jordan River, so you don 't have to cross through Samaria. you can go up um, um, up the shoreline and around it, and those are a lot longer. But if you were a devout religious Jew, you would avoid any contact with those people and 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 uh just just plain safe that you would not come in contact with an unclean people group but Jesus he didn't really have to do anything but I think it was a divine appointment that compelled him to go to the well and so he gets to the well around noon and he's sitting there and you see a display of his humanity as he is weary and tired from the journey you know he's not just floating on a cloud everywhere he goes right he's like no I'm tired I need something to drink so he's sitting by this well and this woman comes and she's by herself. <clears throat> and let me ask why is it out of place for this woman to be coming to the well at this time? Do what? Yeah, the women would usually go all together early, sometimes in the evening. They would avoid go ahead. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's middle of the day, super hot outside. And so the women would either go early in the morning to avoid the heat, or they would go late at night and they would go in groups. And so you've got this woman coming by herself, and she's obviously going by herself for a reason. And I never really thought about it. I was like, what? At what point was she like, you know what? I'm tired of of the looks. I'm tired of being the butt of the joke. I'm tired of the gossip. I'm tired of the stares and the snide comments. I'm tired of it. Was it after the first marriage? Was it after the second marriage? Was it after the third marriage? fourth, the fifth. Like when, at what point, whatever point it was, this wasn't like uh, just a rare occasion. This was something she she had to get water. And so she'd been doing this for a while in her shame, in her loneliness, just going to the well by herself in the heat of the day to avoid the shame that came with being in the crowd. So she's doing what she's been doing for a long time. and, And she comes up to this guy that she doesn't recognize, and he does something that would make him ceremonially unclean in this moment. He asks her for a drink. Now, you read that the Jews didn't have anything to do with the Samaritans, but later on, and we'll get to this, that the, the disciples were buying food in the town. And so when it says they didn't have anything to do with them, it's more of like this social interactions. Um, the disciples buying food might have been a little bit out of the norm, but it wasn't crazy. Um, but what Jesus said, when he asked her for a drink, they didn't share eating and drinking utensils because that would make him unclean. And so he, he asked her for a drink. And he's a rabbi, he's a teacher. Having him in a conversation with a woman is kind of like raising her eyebrows a little bit. Having him in a conversation with a woman who's... Uh, this scandalous, if you will, this woman who has just kind of accepted her sin, right? That I've broken the law time and time and time and time again, and right now I'm living with a guy that I'm just hooking up with, right? And in violation of the law. And it's, it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, you read this. Um, Jesus said, saying, as Jesus was walking alone, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. If you think back to, Matt, or to John chapter three, and you think to the conversation he's having with Nicodemus, you see the range of people that Jesus interacts with. How many of you guys remember who Nicodemus was? Yeah, what, what was his title? What was his job? Nicodemus, yeah. Oh no, no, no yeah, yeah, that Matthew, yeah. What did Nicodemus do? He was a rabbi. Yeah, he was a leader. He was a religious leader, someone who prided themselves. You get half credit, Bernie, because you were, you were still on that Matthew chapter 9. I guess you know you're good. Um, yeah, Nicodemus was a religious leader, someone who prided themselves on keeping the law. And you've got Jesus meeting with him. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a meeting with this Samaritan, already unclean, Samaritan woman, like, can you take it down? A Samaritan woman who is, like, openly living against God's commands. It's like you can't get on two further ends of the spectrum in that culture and Jesus is saying, hey, who did I come for? I came for those who don't think they're right, who don't think they're right. I came for those who are sick. And it's, <clears throat> it's interesting here because, uh, man, this woman is broken. She's hurting. She's sick. She's lost. And, and I pray that we never get to the place where we think we're righteous because of what we know. Cool. I know a decent amount about the Bible. Like, I'm good. I pray that we never get to the place where we think we're righteous because we go to church or we invite people to church, that, that we stay in a place where, like Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are, who are spiritually poor, that realize they have, like, nothing to offer God, right? That God, God, look how good I am, but that, that are spiritually bankrupt and only recognize their need for God. And I pray that's, like, the attitude that we have. That, that we say, hey, I want to follow Jesus as close as I can, but I'm never going to hang my hat on what I can do, because I can't do anything except sin. But because of what Christ has done, that is why I'm righteous, because of what he's done. Like, when, when, when Jesus died on the cross, God looked at him and saw us, right? But, but whenever um, God looks at us, if we believe in him, he sees the righteousness of Christ in us. And so we can't be like, oh, like Jesus said, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. I came for those who are sick. And when the cool thing, one of the cool things about following Christ is the closer and closer you get to Christ, the more you recognize how those little sins are way bigger than we ever thought. Oh, I just lied a little bit. Guess what? Man, that's still a sin against the holy and perfect God. And so Jesus came for those that are sick and need him. Um, and so he's having this conversation with this woman That kicks off in John chapter four. We get to John chapter four, verses 10 through 15. So Jesus just asked her for a drink, and she said, Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus in verse 10 replied, If only you knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, don't you have a rope or you don't have a rope or a bucket? She said, And this well is very deep. Where do you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestors, Jacob? who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Again, we've got Jesus talking about water. You have him talking about water to Nicodemus early in John 3. He says, you've got to be born um, through water and the spirits. And he's telling this woman that if she would ask him, he would give her living water. And this idea goes back to the Old Testament that we talked about um, in his conversations with Nicodemus. You read in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, <clears throat> where the Lord gave this message. He said, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. He's saying, my people have turned away from me. And they've set up these systems, these these religious systems that don't give any life. Um, And Jesus is using this moment to point to the woman's physical need for water, to to open up her eyes to the fact that, that her spiritual life is dry and dead, and she needs living water. But much like Nicodemus, She doesn't understand the reference. Jesus is like, hey, you got to be born again. Nicodemus is like, that's not possible. Jesus says, hey, if you would ask me, I'd give you living water. And she goes, cool. I'm tired of walking here and I'm thirsty. Like, go ahead and hook me up. Like, I don't want to keep making this trip. Like, go ahead and give it here. Um, The well that he was at was dug 2,000 years prior to this conversation by, by Jacob. Again, if you have a Mount Rushmore of people in the Old Testament, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, throw Moses up there, throw David up there. Jacob's a big deal. Jacob's name meant thief, supplanter, right? Heel grabber. God changed his name to Israel, which God prevails. Like, remember, you heard of the country, nation of Israel? Yeah, that was Jacob. Like, he's, he's a big deal. And so Jesus is like, hey, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. And she goes, so the water that you've got is better than, like, you think it's better than what was in this well? Like, Jacob and his sons and his animals enjoy this. It's been sustaining us for, for thousands of years. You think that you've got something better? Like, she's, it's still not clicking up here. <clears throat> and Jesus replies. He says, drinking this water leaves you thirsty. You're coming back tomorrow. You got to come back and get more water every day. This, this, it may quench your thirst for a little bit, but you've got to keep coming back. And he says, but whoever drinks the water that I have to offer will never thirst again. Because those who are in God are completely satisfied in Him. If you read John 3.16, it said, you know, for God's love the world, that whosoever believes, and we talked about it, we talked about John 3.16, that it's it's not just who it's like uh, whoever, but it's for each believing one. You know, you read it in the Greek. And and the, the grammatical structure is very similar in John 4.13, right? Whoever drinks. It's for each drinking one. And I, I talked about if I were to throw a party at my house and someone were asked me, hey, who's coming to your party? i I just say, whoever. I'm not thinking of the people that lived two doors down from me when I was in elementary school that were dealing drugs and had cops at their house like every other night. Like I'm not thinking those people are coming to my house. So it's, no, it's the people that I have in mind. And Jesus is saying for each believing one in John three sixteen, And here he's saying for each drinking one, right? That each one that believes, those are the ones that are going to be saved. Those are the ones that are going to be satisfied. Those are the ones that are never going to thirst. Again, you read Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy, you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. You read Isaiah 55, verse 1. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come and take your choice of wine or milk, it's free. Isaiah 55, 8, or 58, uh, where are we at here? 58, 11 says this Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. If you read the Old Testament with Christ in mind, you see the picture of the living water. Like these prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled in him that he completely satisfies. A few months ago, my mother-in-law was having really bad back pain and headaches and joint pain, just was feeling really, really crummy. And so Aubrey was, was hanging out with her, trying to figure out what's going on. My wife's in the medical field, and really quickly she realized that she was severely dehydrated. Um, she like no, no sarcasm. She lived mostly on diet. Dr. Pepper was like her was her fluid intake. And so Aubrey was like, you've got to cut out soda and you've got to up your water intake. And so she did. And over the next, you know, three, four, five days, she stopped drinking soda and drank water. And magically her headaches went away. Her back pain went away, right? Her joint. She's like, I haven't felt this great in months. And it was like, yeah, you were dehydrated. Like, on a cellular level, your body was starving for water. Um, Google, uh, the all-knowing Google said that uh, we can go about three days without water. Three days without water. Some people can go a little bit longer depending on how hydrated you stay, but about three, three to five days. But spiritually speaking, we're in a much worse state. We're not like, oh, I'm kind of spiritually limping around. My, my soul is kind of parched. No, spiritually speaking, we're dead. Um, we're, not, we're not on life support, we're dead. And Jesus says, I will give you what? Living water, that we are alive in Christ, that, he, that we were dead in our sins, but he made us alive. And just like when we drink water, it's in our system. It goes down to, to our muscles and our joints and, and, our, and helps our digestive tract and helps us on a cellular level when we drink of what Jesus has. It is a life commitment, a wholehearted commitment. It is something that radically transforms us and makes us alive in him. And so Jesus is saying, no, it's not just this passive, I'll kind of sit on the fringe and watch. No, but if you will drink of me, you will see what's going on. You'll see this life change that I'm talking about. And the woman still doesn't get it. Like it's still not connecting. Have you guys ever given someone directions and you thought they were really clear and they still messed it up? And then you try to like clarify it even more and they still mess it up. That's how I picture this conversation is going. But here's the cool thing. Like you see that Jesus do this time and time and time again in the New Testament where he gives these, these analogies of physical things of, of birth and water and, and, and uh, um, life. And he talks about wind and shepherds and vines and, and all this stuff. And we've got uh, uh, some different uh, references up there where he does this. And people don't always understand. And we have the luxury of being able to read the whole story and, and go through and cross-reference and be like, oh, this is where he was talking about this, and I can see the end of the story here, and I see what he was talking about. But the readers at the time, the hearers at the time, a lot of times they didn't get it. They didn't understand the significance of what he was saying. But John writes it in such a way that, our, that us, the readers of his gospel, can start to associate these realities with these spiritual truths of the unseen world, that he is the vine, that we are the branches, that when we stay connected to him, when we abide in him, right? That he is a life-giving water, that when we drink of him, that we're alive, right? That we have to be born again. Okay, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And we're able to see this play out, but this lady isn't quite getting it. In this next passage in John chapter 4, our last section here, verses 4, 16 through 26, um, it kind of takes a weird tangent. Jesus says this in verse 16. It says, go and get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus replied, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is a spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus replied to her, I am the Messiah. It takes kind of a weird turn <clears throat> as he asked for her husband, right? They hadn't really been in the conversation. Been talking about water. All of a sudden he's like, go get your husband. Now you can look at it a couple of ways. Maybe he was like, kind of like on, his ed- on edge and be like, man, I hope no one sees me talking to this woman. Go get your husband. So like everything can be above board and I can talk to him or maybe... Maybe Christ, knowing the thoughts and hearts of men, reads her mail. Maybe if we were the ones going to get the water, he'd say, hey, let me see your internet browser history. And he'd be like, I don't have a cell phone. Um, nope. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he goes, hey, let me see your bank account. And you're like, oh. Uh, and he goes, no, yeah, it's because you're in insane dam- uh, gambling debt, right? Like, like, he reads her mail. He knows exactly what's going on. He's like, go get your husband. Like, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right. You've had five, actually. And the guy that you're living with now isn't your husband. She's addressed him as sir up to this point. Now she's like, this guy's somebody different. This isn't just some guy that's needing a drink. This is, sir, you must be a prophet. And I, I imagine, you know, trying to avoid an awkward conversation. She's like, so tell me about worship, right? She's, I don't want to talk about my husband or my life. Like you Jews say it's Jerusalem. We say it's here. Tell me about that. And so Jesus doesn't really go into the details of that, he goes into the details of something new that's on the horizon, all right? We talked about in John 2 about the clearing of the temple and that the the temple had become kind of obsolete, that it had lost its original purpose and there was a new temple that was coming. And here he's like, hey, it's not gonna matter where you worship. Physically, in 40 or 50 years, the temple in Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed anyway. So like, it's not gonna matter where they worship, but there's gonna be a time, indeed it's here now, we're true worshipers, we worship God in spirit and truth, where true worshipers, when Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit will reside in those believers, and those believers are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what temple you, you can worship, I don't care where you worship, right? Because that temple, it, it doesn't matter. The temple, the altar, who cares? Right? Because very soon, my followers are going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's pointing to this new thing that's about to come, this new thing that's on the horizon. And she's like, oh, okay. And even in their, their if you have a Venn diagram of where their beliefs overlap, it's very small, but even that small overlap, she still knows that there is a Messiah that's going to come. So "He's there's a Messiah and he's, he's gonna reveal all things. And Jesus does something that he doesn't do very often. He outright confesses that he is the Messiah. And he uses some language that's um, very interesting. He says, I am the Messiah. Can you guys think of a time where, where, I don't know, in the Bible, where the name, phrase, I am has come into play? Anyone can think of that? What? what burning bush. Moses says, hey, Exodus 3, 14. Moses says, hey, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? God says, "I am." And he's like, "All right." He Says, "I am who I am." Sent you, okay? It. Teacher, quit giving away my lesson. You're getting ahead of me. No, you're right. Yeah, but he, and there's a couple times where he uses that term, "I am," and that "I am" is is exclusively and unquestionably reserved. For God Almighty, I am what? I am all-powerful, I am everything, I am salvation, I am hope, I am judgment, I am fair, I am righteous, I am powerful, I'm eternal, what I am, what else am I? Yeah, I am that as well, right? I am who I am. He uses this in John 8 when he's talking to the crowd, and he's trying to talk to them about being the children of Abraham, and they're going back and forth, and they're like, well, you're not greater than Abraham, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they didn't respond too well to that. They picked up rocks. And they were ready to stone them and kill them. When, when the soldiers came to get him in John 18, they said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am he. And at that time, they fell back to the ground, fell down. These aren't like little weaklings. These are soldiers coming to arrest somebody. He speaks, I am fall down. And you see, that, see these interesting phrases where he says, I am, and you have one group that's ready to kill him, and you have one group that's scared to death, and they fall down. But if you notice something different when he says to this woman, what's her response? We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're not covering it tonight, but it's one where she leaves and says, come see a man who's told me everything. Could he be the Messiah. And because of her belief, these unclean, defiled, dirty, looked down upon Samaritans, the Bible says that many of them believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It's an interesting dynamic where you have the Jewish people who have the full revelation of God and the prophets in the, in the, the Pentateuch and the Psalms, you have the full revelation of God. And when Jesus is like, hey, I'm the one that you guys have been waiting for. John 1 said that in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God, that when God said, I am in the burning bush, Jesus was right there. And you've got this interesting dynamic where the people who should have known and recognized, John 1:10 and 11 says that he came to his own people and they rejected him. But you've got this woman the Samaritan woman, remember the context, not a, not, they didn't like him. They were not friendly. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm he. She didn't pick up a stone to kill him. She didn't fall down in terror. She went and told other people. Man, what an awesome, awesome response.